Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome to the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, which I'm really, really excited about because it's somebody I consider a good friend and a mentor. But you guys have been doing an amazing job with our Amazon partnership. You're not familiar with what I'm talking about? Well, it's really simple. You go to our website, hazardground.com, and click on the Sponsors tab or scroll down to the bottom of the homepage and click on that Amazon button right there. You can go to Amazon, do all your normal Amazon shopping, buy whatever you need, We'll get a percentage of what you spend, and then we take that percentage and donate it right back to one of the charities featured here on the Hazard Ground. And because of your guys' efforts, going to hazardground.com, we've been able to make another donation. So you guys are doing great, and you're helping out veterans from the comfort of your own house, through your smartphone, on your computer, whatever it may be. Just keep on spending on Amazon, but make sure you go to hazardground.com first. Make sure you follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Keep up with the show and tell a friend about what we have going on. Also, leave us a rating and a review on iTunes because that helps grow the popularity of the show much, much more. All that's out of the way. Now let's get on to this week's episode of The Hazard Ground. Joining us this week is a former Army captain who had deployments to both Bosnia and Iraq. After his time in the Army, he was elected to the 8th Congressional District in the state of Pennsylvania. He went on to be the Undersecretary of the Army and the Acting Secretary of the Army for a short time. He was instrumental in repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell and getting women into combat roles in the Army. An absolutely phenomenal career, and I also consider him a friend. He is still a very busy man, and we're fortunate enough to catch him while he's on the move, so forgive the noise in the background, but he is Patrick Murphy joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Patrick, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Mark. It's great to be with you, brother. All right, Pat. Uh, you're one of the few people who gets on the podcast that I actually consider a, you know, a friend, and you and I have known each other for several years now, so it's great to actually get you on to talk about a whole bunch of different things. And, uh, you know, obviously the, the uh, run from you know, army guy into politics is not one we get into often. And we're excited to hear about that, but let's go all the way back to the beginning and tell us how and why you got in the United States army. Uh, I joined the army 19 brother. And listen, it's a family affair. My, my dad served the Navy during Vietnam. My uncle, uh, Bill served as a, a paratrooper with the 82nd airborne division. was in Vietnam with 101st, another uncle that was an uh, 11th airborne. And so I joined the army at 19 and said, I want to be an airborne ranger. And, uh, you know, I, I eventually went to ROTC, was commissioned as an army officer and, uh, and then just hit the ground running. But I just, you know, was lucky enough to, you know, go from community college to army officer to West Point professor and deployed to combat deployments. And, and I, I've, I've been a friend and part of the army for, for a few decades now. And it's, it's a great family like yourself to be part of. You know, and for those who are listening don't know, you're actually a lawyer as well. But did you use the Army to attend law school? Um, I was commissioned as an Army officer uh, at, through RT at the college, and then eventually they cut me loose to go to law school. Uh, so, yeah, I left the Army to go to law school uh, and then went back on active duty um, as a judge advocate. So I was, then became a military prosecutor, and then uh, they asked me to join the faculty at West Point, which is – Amazing, you know, considering I was at community college 10 years earlier and then, you know, the VA young professor at West Point is a captain teaching in the law department, the next generation of military leaders about the Constitution that we all take an oath to support and defend was a pretty awesome responsibility. And uh, when I was doing that job, uh, had a great opportunity to, to write newspaper columns for local paper called The Point of View at West Point. I had a column called Murphy's Law. Um, and, you know, just, just soaked up that experience at West Point and spent, you know, three years there. Uh, but I was there when 9-11 happened, unfortunately, Mark, and, uh, I was getting ready to go to Ranger School. And, uh, when that happened, I, uh, deployed a few months later, uh, under General Petraeus and got in a fight. So let me ask you, when 9-11 happens, what are you thinking at the time? I mean, obviously, you're, you have connections to the Army. You're still serving. So it's one of those things where um, we talk to a lot of guys on the podcast, and 
you know, whether they're army rangers or they're mechanics or whatever, the general feeling was everybody, you know, we were all going to war. But uh, I'm curious as from a from a JAG perspective, when, you know, you decide to get into the fight, it's a, it's a completely different fight, so to speak. It is, you know, but I was, you know, I I was a judge advocate, but because I was in the army for several years prior, prior to ever going into law school, I, you know, I've been to airborne school, been to air assault school, was prepping to go to ranger school and, um, and I knew I, you know, I was going to go, you know, in and out of either the Ranger Regiment or infantry units. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was one of those deals where, you know, I joined the Army in 1993. And this was the, the height of uh, Bosnia and Kosovo. And that's when America, you know, stopped the worst ethnic cleansing in Europe since World War II. When we saved, they were killed Muslims on the side of the road in towns like Srebrenica. Uh, and so... Uh, I joined the army. I, I thought I was going to get into the fight there. It was right after Desert Storm. Uh, and, uh, it was obviously when 9 11 happened, you know, that, that clearly, you know, I knew, uh, I wanted to get in the fight. I had friends that were murdered that day, uh, that I went to college with and other friends. And, and, uh, I quickly studied all I could on Al Qaeda and the Taliban. And I wanted to make sure that we brought them to justice. And, Want to get in that fight and uh, deploy a few months later, like I said, on the General Petraeus, and then came back from that deployment. And it was the ramp up to the Iraq War at that time. Uh, and I was going, I was PCS in the brag to go to the 82nd, and knew what that meant. And so became part of the invasion force in Iraq. And you deployed right to Iraq in 03 at the outset of that war. So, um, What's your mission at that time as you're going? As you mentioned, you go to the 82nd, you know what's ahead of you. What were you told as you guys were heading into Iraq? Uh, well, first, I was a second-grade combat team with the 82nd, so we were supposed to we were away. We were supposed to jump into Baghdad to seize the Baghdad airport. Um, they scratched that mission. We were going pretty quick up uh, through, and some of the supply lines were uh, being hit, and we had fatalities and, and uh uh, with an action of people like Jessica Lynch, uh, special special Jessica Lynch, or, uh, who were who were injured. So uh, our brigade we fought our way up to Asamoa, Fallujah, and then in the Baghdad. Um, and uh, you know, and then it was you know we had the Al Rashid sector of Baghdad. The Al Rashid sector of Baghdad was Sunni and Shia dominated. So. Uh, we basically had an uh, area of 1.3 million Iraqis, which is the size of my hometown of Philadelphia. And, you know, my, my old man was a cop after serving in the Navy for 22 years. So there's, of the 1.5 million people in Philly, there's 7,000 cops. So the 1.5 million people in Arashid, Baghdad, instead of having 7,000 of us, there was 3,500 of us, one brave combat team. So we were a little shorthanded, and, and unfortunately... Uh, we paid the price, and we lost 19 of our of our brothers and, and our brigade. You know, it's something we talk about a lot on the podcast when you lose a brother or a fallen service member. Um, you know, for you, when when that happens, uh, does anything change? I mean, whether it's emotionally inside. I mean, you know, obviously combat becomes real, and you realize you know the the, the, uh, the situation that's in front of you uh, isn't just training. It isn't just you know learning the ins and outs. It's it's a real thing and, and people losing their lives. What did it mean to you when you had a fallen, a fallen comrade? Well, Mark, you know, I, I think those of us like you and I and, and, and your listeners that, you know, I think we all, we all get it. We all understand it. it it's, you know, I'm a big believer of post-traumatic growth. Uh, you, you see the, the best and the worst of people. You see the face of evil and, uh, and you, and you see the heartbreak and, you know, it can either fight or flight. And I think a lot of us fight and try to make this world a better place and trying to do it's necessary to get the job done so we can go home and see our friends and our family again. And, um, you know, for me, like, you know, like, you know, having my guys, you know, wash out blood from gun trucks and, and, and seeing it and seeing the thick of it and getting mortared at night and, you know, the roadside bombs, you know, we had Route Irish or Highway 8 or, what we used to call ambush alley, you know, which killed the majority of 1990 with and killed and injured the majority of our, of our troops, whether it's in Iraq or Afghanistan from those IEDs. I mean, you know, living through that is something that will always stay in me. And, and, 
more importantly, even the ones that, that did make it home to make sure that I'm there for them, uh, that they don't succumb to the, the injuries back at home. And uh, of one of my, the members of my team never, he made it home from Iraq, but he never was quite right. And he's no longer with us. And that's the kind of stuff that that type of survivor's guilt where, you know, I wish I could have done more, did more. And I did a hike a lot for him, but that's the stuff that kind of weighs on me that will frankly kind of haunt me. So as a lawyer in Iraq, like, okay, I, I would, the general assumption by civilians and even some military folks is that we go out and we capture bad guys, right? And then we just assume that, well, we throw them in jail and we leave them there because we know that they're bad guys. But it's a little more complicated than that. Like, we actually, and you actually, had to prosecute bad guys and charge them with crimes in order to continue to jail them based off of that's how our justice system works, correct? Yeah, I mean, so I so one of the biggest terrorists in the world is a guy who talked about al-Sadr, uh, of Sadr City, right. Arqwa Sadr, obviously a huge Shia leader. He's a terrorist. He spent several years in in Iran, uh, but he's back in Iraq, and uh, he was causing all sorts of problems. Every Friday, he was speaking to hundreds, if not thousands, of Iraqis, telling them to kill the infidels, kill the Iraq, kill, you know, kill Americans, etc. So, yeah, one of his top lieutenants um, was Sheikh Toman. Uh, I went up prosecuting him because he was doing the same thing in our sector at, at a local mosque in the Awashi district. And we took him to the, to the highest court of the land in, in Iraq. It's called the Iraqi Criminal Court or the Central Criminal Court of Iraq. Uh, and we put him away for a long time uh, for doing what he's trying to do to, to kill Americans and, uh, and inciting uh, his followers to, to kill us over there. So uh, we took it to him. Uh, we prosecuted him. And um, we were sending a message, uh, not just a terrorist, but directly to, to talk to Al-Sadr that we weren't going to, uh, we weren't going to stand for scrap. How much different is it to prosecute in that environment? And I'm talking legally, not, not just like, you know, physically outside of all the demands of, of being deployed, but how much different is it to do it to a war criminal than just the average Joe in the United States who breaks the law? Well, I will tell you, you know, I went to law school under the, the JAG school at the University of Virginia. You learn all about the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Uh, you, know, you know, I've been in courtrooms, and federal court, military courts, civilian courts. And, uh, I never learned, frankly, in law school or JAG school, the 1969 Iraqi criminal code. But <laughs> that's how we prosecuted these guys. We prosecuted them under the... 1969 Iraqi criminal code and, and use some of the GVN8 dimensions, but you know, that's how we prosecuted, uh, some of these terrorists. And, uh, and it was what we had to do to get the job done to take them off the streets to keep, to keep our paratroopers safe and, uh, keep the Iraqis in our sector as, as safe as we could. And so, uh, it's one of those things I appreciate you asking. I don't get asked a lot of, a lot about it. Uh, but you know, it was, it was literally my team and I boning up on, uh, you know, on the Iraqi criminal code and, and taking the elements of those crimes and then applying the facts that we had them and the evidence that we had them. Uh, and, you know, I was the command judge advocate, but, you know, I'm, I'm working for the brigade commander. I'm working for that full board colonel. And, and we were, we were moving, shaking, and we were getting after it, you know, and, you know, I was leading convoys up, up and down in Bush Alley and, and, you know, taking witnesses to go testify and getting ready to prosecute them. And, you know, we were a foot operating post, you know, in our sheets, but I had to, you know, would convoy up just to, you know, have these trials and these court martials were, were in this case, you know, in front of the Central Criminal Court of Iraq, uh, which was located in the Green Zone. And uh, my guys love going to the Green Zone, Mark, because let me tell you, if we were the property base, we didn't really have showers or <laughs> air conditioner or anything. We right. didn't know swimming pools. So going to the Green Zone was somewhat of a, uh, it was worth going to the Alley because, you know, I would, uh, I would tell our men that, all right, like, you know, after you pull security and after you go conduct, uh, water survival training, which meant, you know, go jump on a pool so you could, uh, not smoke so bad and way home. I'm genuinely curious about how this, cause I'm trying to picture it in my head. I mean, are you sitting there in a courtroom, like with an interpreter going back and forth with, you know, an Iraqi criminal trying to, you know, prosecute them and cross examine them? 
Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and what I learned quickly by frankly getting yelled at by an Iraqi judge was they have a different system where, you know, in American courts, you know, judges are frankly, there's the prosecution and defense and, you know, they kind of, you know, ask questions and you have a, you know, cross examination, all that stuff. Well, in the Iraqi courts, I got yelled at by the judge because they ask the questions first and then you get to do the clean up or the follow up. So, um, you know, so, uh, you know, the reality of it is, is, uh, you know, it was a learning experience. Uh, I don't think I'll ever have to prosecute anyone again under the 1990 Iraqi criminal code, but, uh, uh, and I don't think I'll probably ever get yelled again by an Iraqi judge, but <laughs> got the job done. And we were, uh, I was three for three on the, on the, the, those Supreme Court level cases that I had, which was, was a pretty awesome experience for me. You, you, for took, our team. you took the next question out of my mouth was, did you ever lose one? I was just curious, but you went three for three. So I guess not. No, no. So, uh, and these were bad people. You never want to lose the, and have these guys out in the street. So. I mean, does it, outside of the thrill of winning, I guess, because for any lawyer, and I'm just assuming that, you know, your whole purpose in life is to win a case, but the other side of this for you is that, hypothetically speaking, the guys in the jack court, if you lose and this guy gets set free, then you're making the guys in the field go out and do extra work here, and right? I mean, is that sort of a thought in your head? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, listen, if these guys would have been cut loose to go free, we knew that they were going to kill our brothers and sisters and we knew that they were unfortunately even like they did in the past and when I prosecuted for it, they were killing own civilian Iraqis and kidnapping them and torturing them and, and doing a lot of things that created evil. Um, so there was no way in hell I was going to lose those cases. It's amazing. I'm uh, just, how much of you were there for after Saddam was captured in his case? Did you get to see any of that at all? No, I, I, we all redeployed our brigade combat team. We all redeployed, uh, in the early part of, of January. We were there, uh, uh, when we took him out, when we ca- captured him with the crit. Uh, so that was like the 4th of July because the whole Iraq was exploding. That we were bringing him, that not to justice, but, uh, no, I, I didn't have to, I wasn't part of the trial team that prosecuted Saddam. Um, but, uh, I was ready for the justice, but uh, I was I was home by the time he got his trial and was put to death. All right. So after your deployment, you go back to Fort Bragg. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, date wise, but in late 2004, you get off active duty, correct? That's correct. Yep. Okay. Uh, Fort Bragg. I uh, went back home uh, to, to Pennsylvania. So. Bucks County and, and, and Philly. When did you start having thoughts about, hey, I'd like to run for office and serve in a different capacity? Um, you know, I I had a lot of folks, you know, I was active. You know, I got a chance to meet Bill Clinton when I was in college, uh, when he was the president. He was helping rebuild the area. And I just got done being like a sand vatican effort when the uh, Susquehanna River, there was flooding and unfortunately six people were killed and I got a chance to meet the president then. Um, and that was an awesome experience. A lot of people said, Hey, do you think someday you might want to run for Congress or president? And I was like, Hey, I, I I'm, I'm in the army. Like, I, this is in 1996. I was like, I got, I got, I'm going to be in the army for a long time. So, uh, eight years later when I'm getting out in 2004, you know, a lot of folks were, were still asking me and, uh, and I was pretty passionate, Mark. I mean, we have the least amount of veterans serving in Congress right now in over six decades. And when you, Look at the government. When you look at America, uh, one of the most well-respected professions is the military profession. In fact, the most respected profession is the military profession. And one of the least respected professions is uh, politics and people in Washington, D.C. And so I, I think one of the reasons is because we don't have enough veterans, enough patriots get involved in political public service. And that's a really noble calling. You can help out a lot of people. You can put our country back in the right fiscal track and do things that's necessary to move our country in the right direction, but I'm not a veteran to get involved in it. And I think that's a shame. No, I agree. I mean, listen, uh, it's always been a passion of mine. It's always something I've looked forward to in the future. I think I need a little bit more priming of the pump, so to speak, but I, I certainly agree. So when you make this decision, do you know how to go about running for office? Well, I, you know, like I said, I, eight years earlier, I knew I, you know, I met President Putin and, and, you know, I worked a couple campaigns, but I also knew that 
you know, I was pretty, I was pretty pissed off that they were trying to cut our combat pay when I was in Iraq. And I was like, who are these fuckloads in Washington and, and the Pentagon that were, you know, not taking care of our men and women. And, um, you know, combat pays only a couple hundred dollars a month. So as a captain, it's not a, it's not a deal breaker. It's not in the world, but you know, for my private first class once, Juan Arvello, who was, you know, raised by a single mom and, you know, he's making 17 grand a year. Um, you know, a couple hundred dollars is a lot of money for Juan Arvalo from Texas, one of my paratroopers. Uh, and I was determined to go represent guys like him if, if I was lucky enough to serve in the Congress of the United States. And so when I became the first Iraq vet and the only Iraq vet my first term to serve, like that was an honor. But more importantly, uh, I was there to get work done. And I was there and I co-authored with Jim Webb and Tim, Tim Walls the post 9-11 GI Bill. And this is, again, this is the last two years of President Bush. So we got that done. I was very proud of that. And then to be in Congress uh, when Senator Obama won and to serve under him uh, or serve you know, with him during that time uh, as someone in the political branch government, Congress in the White House, that was, uh, that was a pretty awesome experience. When you actually figure out that you're going to run, I mean, obviously, I mean, for you, you went back to your home county, you know, your home area, your home district to run in. Um, I mean, obviously, I, I get the connection, but could you have chosen another place to do it? It was just the most natural. Listen, I, when, I, when I ask people, like, you know, when people say, hey, I want to run for Congress, I want to do this, I want to do that, I always ask them, I said, well, where do you want to live, like, permanently? Because if you're running, going to move somewhere just to run, that's not the right reason to do it. You got to represent the people that are your brothers and sisters and your neighbors and your friends. And it's got to be personal because it, it is not easy. You know, there's 600,000 elected positions in America. There's only 536 federal seats. So I tell people, man, it, like you got to, most folks don't win the first time. I mean, George Bush lost the first time you're after Congress. Barack Obama lost the first time you're after Congress. You know, I was lucky enough to win my first time. Bill Clinton lost the first time you're at. You know, but you got to tell people, you got to, you know, you got to tell man, you got to do it for the right reasons. And, and it's, you shouldn't be moving anywhere just for, for political, for political reasons. No, that makes sense. Um, when, when you start your campaign, um, do you have a list of things that you want people to know about? I mean, kind of just take me through the, uh, if you were to say how to run for election for dummies, like, what do you need to do? I literally mark read books like such as like how to win campaigns. <laughs> like I read a book, how to win campaign. I went and did it. And, uh, you know, part of that, part of that gig was like, you know, I, I, you know, wasn't sure, uh, how to do it, but I read books about it. I talked to a lot of people. I grabbed a lot of coffee with folks and just, and asked their advice and we got after it. And, and, uh, you know, and I built a team. I got coffee, a lot of political, people and asked their advice. A lot of folks said to me, though, they were like, Patrick, you have a great story, but you have no money. And, you know, your, your dad's a cop. Your mom was a legal secretary. And, like, don't run for Congress. Uh, run for state rep. Run for this or that. I was determined to run for Congress. And uh, it, I was, you know, a, a Democrat run in the Republican area. And, and frankly, you know, it was the, I, I was spent by $3 million by my opponent. So I knocked out an incumbent, even though I spent by $3 million and, and won. And I didn't know if that gig was going to be two years or 20 years, but I knew I was going to make a difference. I had an opportunity to serve. Take me to election night. Um, what's that like? What's it like trying to figure out where you are as the polls and the results come in? And uh, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? Is it a tense night for you? Give me that whole sort of experience. Well, listen, when, when you run for office, man, it is all consuming in a sense that like, you know, I was working, I was still working a day job and I was, I was hustling and, uh, you know, I didn't have, I didn't have kids at that point and stuff, but it was, it was nuts. But I will tell you the night, you know, when the polls closed at eight o'clock at night, that to me was my finish line. You know, I was done and there's no more, you know, hands to shake, no more, you know, saying, you know, can you give me a shot? Would you mind voting for me? And, you know, if you want to change Washington, you have to change who you send to Washington. And so I will tell you one of the most interesting parts of that is that I remember I had about two hours off and I'm in a war room and I'm looking, the numbers are coming back. Some are good, some are bad. We knew it was going to be nip and tuck, man. It was, it was a, 
it was an Irish Johnny Brook. I was going against a guy named Fitzpatrick, <laughs> and like you know, it was, um, and he was you know Richie Santorum's protege. And again, he he outspent me by three million dollars. But I was I was, you know, I was, I ran a gritty race, and I didn't take crap from him or anyone. And you know, he he once had a press conference and said, "I stand, I, I call him Patrick Murphy to stand strong with Israel." And he did it at a synagogue. You know what I did? I showed up at his press conference. I, like he wants to call me and stand strong with him. All right, I'll show up. And he didn't know what to do with me. So I stood up and, you know, I had a debate with him right there about, you know, our allies in the Middle East and et cetera. And so uh, I ran an Orthodox campaign, but but one that showed, you know, what it was to be an American fire trooper, what it was to have grit and tenacity and that will to win. That's awesome. Uh, That's good, man. It wasn't a will to win, though, about, for Patrick Murphy. It was a will to win about taking this country back and to do things like co-author the night I've been, post I have in GI Bill and, and to make sure that, you know, our folks in Congress understood when they send our men and women to harm's way, they better understand the ramifications of that, that when they come home, you know, we got to take care of them to get home too. And yes, we want to make sure they don't have a fair fight. We want to make sure every one of our men and women over there have the technical tactical advantage over our enemy and they are there to win and they have a clear mission and a clear extra strategy. But they also, when they come home, we got to protect them uh, and we got to make sure that we give them opportunities, whether that's to become a entrepreneur, whether it's to go back to college, whether it's to, you know, start a small business or, or get a house in a GI bill. And that was my focus. And, you know, I had a lot of folks that were aligned with me about moving that ball forward on behalf of our men and women, folks like, Tim Walls is now the governor of Minnesota. You know, he's, uh, you know, served during Operation uh, Enduring Freedom as a command sergeant major. You know, folks like uh, Tom Rooney's Republican, who's my buddy in the Army and was my buddy uh, uh, at West Point. We were professors together. Um, and, you know, I've had a chance to serve in the company's heroes uh, and people like John McCain and, and Jack Reed. And, and that, that's what made it uh, pretty special. How much, when you decide that, you know, you're going to show up at this guy's, you know, campaign spot or whatever it is to, to square up with him head on. I mean, it, 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 do you think if you weren't a soldier, if you didn't have that sort of training, that mentality that you would have been able to pull that same thing off? No, no doubt. It was, I was, I was blessed. I knew I was lucky, but, uh, I, but I knew like for, you know, for years, you know, for over a decade, I was part of America's army and I knew I could take it to him and win. You became only the third Democrat um, to ever be elected in your county in American history. When you think back on that accomplishment, what does it mean to you? It's a pretty, it's a, it's it's pretty sobering to be honest with you, Mark. I mean, I would love to tell you that, like, oh, I know it was always going to happen, whatever. I mean, I, I, listen, man, I'm a blue collar kid. I grew up in a row house. I went to community college, uh, and when I won this race, I was like one of the ten least wealthy members of Congress. I'm still paying my college loans off, like you know, in my law school loans. So like to me, it was, uh, it was an honor. And I was also like, I got to make this count. Like it wasn't about Patrick Murphy. And it wasn't about like even Bucks County, man. It was about that's the 1% of America that is serving during a defining moment in our nation's history. We keep asking these young men and women to go back time and time and time again, to places like Iraq, in Afghanistan to leave their sons and daughters, to leave their families. And, you know, when, when I had members of Congress complaining that, oh, we're, we're voting real late tonight. And, oh man, it's like 10 o'clock or it's 7 o'clock at night. Oh, it's, I'm like, man, there's, there's troops over in Baghdad right now or in Kabul. They're, 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 they're going on deployments at 10 o'clock. They're going out in operation until two, three, four, five, six o'clock in the morning. Uh, working 20 hour days, seven days a week for months and months and months at a time. I'm like, you know, so, you know, and, and I would, I would educate my colleagues and say, Hey, hey, listen, like you guys get paid a lot of money down here and, and, you know, you're not millionaires or whatever, but like, you know, it, it's, it's, it should be about those folks that we're serving, that we're representing that are there in places in harm's way on our behalf to represent our American values and to fight for us to make sure that we take them out over there and they're not hitting us here, murdering our innocent civilians like they did on 9-11. 
you win that election in 2006. Uh, you have to run again in 2008. You win there. And from the high of two wins, when you run in 2010, you end up facing that same former U.S. Congressman Mike Fitzpatrick, who you beat the first time. He comes back to beat you in a narrow race. How do you swallow that pill? Hey, it's, it's, it, it, was, it was rough. But I will tell you, Mark, you know, I'm a, I'm a devout Catholic, and, and I believe that, frankly, that, that God has a plan. And I was at church that Sunday before Election Day. I lit a candle with my family, my kids now, I have kids at that point. And I remember I never prayed once, God, please let me win this race. I said, God, I don't know what your will is, but I hope, you know, I, I'm an instrument of your peace. And, um, and you know, we came up a little short, uh, but I also knew that I was, that I was standing for something. I knew the wind was not at our back. I knew it was, we were the underdog. Uh, but I, but I was gracious in victory and I sure as hell was going to be gracious in defeat. Uh, cause I got a lot done in those, in those four years. And, you know, things like repeal the, repeal don't ask, don't tell. That was the Murphy Amendment. Uh, so people who, whoever they love, could serve in the military. Uh, and so to me, like, I had no regrets. I, you know, met the guy at a diner and, you know, say, hey, listen, you know, I, I'm more willing to be helpful to you as you move forward. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm proud because, as you know, the Army teaches, teaches you that character is how you are when nobody's looking. And so, um, you know, it, it is what it is. But uh, I had a good, I had a, a great run, four years serving the Congress of the United States during the fighting moment. Uh, I, we were very active and got a lot of stuff done. But, you know, the voters had a different idea. Uh, you know, it was a tea party then. And, and um, you know, they talked about Obamacare and how it was death panels and all this stuff. And, you know, I know it was a bunch of BS, but I had a whole bunch of you know, we had town halls and, and, and I stood in front of, of my constituents and, and even though it's a more Republican district, I knew that, uh, I knew that even though we lost by single digits, I, I knew the, the voters knew that, um, you know, I, I did the best job I could. Uh, a lot of them were likely to run again. Um, but we'll see. I'm, uh, I, I love political public service. It's an honorable profession. Uh, but I, I haven't run for Congress since, and, and um, who the heck knows what the future could hold. It's funny you bring that up because I was just going to ask you, like, after you lose an election, how do you go back to being just a regular guy? Like, how do you know what to do next? I know you were gracious in defeat in that moment, but there's got to be some, well, now what the hell do I do? Well, it's simple, man. I, when I won elections, uh, and when I lost this one, I, I went and did what I did before the election. I went to the train station the very next day, uh, and I shook people's hand and I said, Hey, thanks for, thanks for letting me serve for four years. I hope I made you proud of my efforts. And people were like, Holy, I'm reading about you in the newspaper, man. And I quit, and, and I was like, yeah, listen, I came up a little short, but you know, I, I, I'm really grateful for this opportunity to serve. And, uh, you know, part of it was I read, books, biographies on, on people like Bill Clinton and Harry Reid and Barack Obama and George Bush. And, you know, when you lose, everybody loses and almost everybody. And so, you know, you got to be willing to, to accept that and uh, to move on from it. So to me, I knew my time in serving the country wasn't going to be over. I didn't know what capacity I might be able to serve again. Uh, so, you know, I, I went and I joined a law firm and I had my, a TV show, uh, with NBC and created some other programs for CBS sports. Uh, and then President Obama, uh, I saw him at an event and he said, Hey, Patrick, make some changes in the Pentagon and I'd like you to go, you know, help run the army. And so I said, uh, okay. Yes, sir. All right. Put that on and, pause for one second. Hold on. I want to get to some other things before we get to the secretary, uh, under secretary <laughs> of the army stuff because, well, I mean, listen, it's, it's worthwhile mentioning, you know, the don't ask, don't tell thing. As I mentioned, you were instrumental in getting that bill passed. Um, you, your public record, you were against the surge in Iraq. So how do you, as a former service member, you know, 
don't people look at you sideways and you say, wait a second, you were in the army. How are you against the surge? Or you were in the army. Why would you want to change what was? Like, when you take these positions, uh, and for the record, you know, my own personal feelings, repealing Donast Hotel was the right thing to do. We're a better force for it. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But from that standpoint, you know, did you ever get conflicted or did you ever struggle on what side to be on? Well, you know, so you have hearings and all this stuff. But, you know, I used to tell my colleagues, listen, and I used to tell the cadets at West Point when I taught there, you're there to, to think critically. If everybody's thinking the same, you know, you're wrong. And just because they've always done it that way for decades, I mean, hell, man, we used to have segregated units in the Army, and we desegregated our military when a half our damn country was still segregated. When in the South they had whitewater fountains and, and colored ones and restaurants. And, you know, and I was like, hey, man, no one cares who you love back at home. They don't care if you have a boyfriend or girlfriend back home, if you're gay or straight or bi, whatever. Like, they just care. Could you carry it on for? Could you get the job done? And so, you know, I, there's a lot of folks, um, you know, that were, that was against it. And a lot of folks that, you know, weren't happy with me. And, you know, I had a, at that time, there was the current chief of staff in the army, four star general was, you know, not for the repeal of the National Hotel and uh, a lot of the forces against it. Um, and, you know, I had, I had members of Congress, you know, one guy who told me that, you know, he's from the South. He said, hey, Murphy, you know, you know, this Don't Ask Hotel repeal, if this passes in the law, you're going to have blood on your hands. Uh, you know, I'm wow. in the gym. I just, got done, I just got done doing like P90X with Paul Ryan, you know, <laughs> and uh, I'm going to tell I'm going to shower. It's like, you know, it's like very Top Gun-ish, you know, I'm like, kind of like, dude, like, you know, and I just, I got in his face a little bit. And I said, and I was like, listen, man, I was like, you don't get it, man. I was like, people, my generation, we, do, we don't care who you love, man. We, it's a called equality. Like we just care. Can you get the job done? And I was like, so I just gave him a look like, and I, and I gave him a look like, dude, don't be bothering me in the gym, man. Like, you know, like, <laughs> um, you know, like, you know, it was like, you know, very Ivan Drago, like, I will break you next time you do this, get, you know, get my face. So, you know, it's all good. Um, and, but like, you know, you got to be willing to have moral courage. You know, one of my role models in life is Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy said once that uh, moral courage is more rare than physical courage. And, you know, to have moral courage to do what's right, even when no one's looking or do what's right when it's hard to be on the right side of history, because it might not be popular at that time. That's what's important. And, you know, I always knew that, you know, I have two little kids, Maggie Murphy and Jack Murphy. I knew when they were in college or high school and they Googled their daddy, uh, they'll see what my record is. And I want them to be proud of what their daddy stood for when he had the incredible and awesome responsibility to serve this great nation. You know, I, I saw a documentary on Don't Ask, Don't Tell and the repeal of it. Um, and my jaw was on the floor at some of the names of the people who actually opposed it. But I, And I will say this much. There was one thread that they all had in common. They were all older than 50 years old. They were all guys who were older than 50 years old. And, and as you talk about the generations and the way our force, our military forces move forward, um, that, was in, that was eye-opening to me that it was just one of the signs of the times. And ever since then seeing that, I, I kind of just felt as a leader and somebody who still serves that, you know, I, I owe it to listen to the next voice in our organization, right? Like I owe it to take some time and spend some time with junior enlisted and junior officers and, and people who are 10, 15 years younger than me and find out what they need because the army was there before I got there and it's going to be there long after I leave. And the next generation of leaders, it's my responsibility to train them. And to that end, um, I, I feel like that they're still, and again, just the way our organization is built, that older generation dies hard, right? And those are the people who sometimes tend to be the biggest um, sticks in the mud, if you will, against progressive thinking. Yeah, yeah. So, and you got to understand that. Listen, I was respectful, uh, even to the opponents on the other side. I mean, unless, like I told you, they got my face. Uh, then I then I made sure that, you know, they realized that Patrick Murphy's no pushover. But um you know, at that time, you know, I had folks like, you know, listen, John McCain was on the other side of that issue, but I never made a personal John McCain. He's a personal hero of mine. I disagree with him on that policy uh, and other things, but I always knew that in his mind and in his heart, uh, he always put the country first, even if we disagreed about it. And, 
I will tell you years later when I had to go through Senate confirmation and through his committee that he chaired, I got passed. I got confirmed within three days, man, which was a record. And part of that was because he also saw, I think, something to me that, you know, I wasn't some political animal. I wasn't some guy who's going to just give you talking points. I did my homework. I worked my ass off and I always put the country first. All right. So let's go back to that phone call you get from President Obama. You're essentially out of office here. I won't say you're out of work. You weren't unemployed at the time, but President Obama picks up the phone. That's got to be weird when your cell phone rings and it's, oh, it's the White House. Yeah. Um, but uh, he picks up the phone and what does he say to you outside of Patrick? I'm doing some shuffling. Can you, can you, do you remember the conversation? Yeah. Yeah. He just said, listen, I'm, I'm making some changes. I have new stuff left coming in. We're making some changes in the Pentagon. I got to finish my last two years out strong. And I, and, and Patrick, I need you to be part of it. And I say, I said, okay, sir. I said, well, what do you have in mind? And he's like, you know, I, I, I'd like to be the, you know, uh, the undersecretary of the army. Uh, and I was like, okay. And then, um, I frankly had to go and look up what the undersecretary of the army was. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but I thought he's Google and, uh, you know, you have the secretary of the army, then you have the undersecretary. So it's like the CEO and then the COO. And then you have, uh, four assistant secretaries of the army underneath under and then, and general counsel. But, um, I looked it up and, you know, it was a pretty big portfolio. At the time, I just signed a two-year contract extension. Uh, I was a partner in a major law firm. I just signed a two-year contract extension where they double my salary with NBC. Um, so eventually I had to go to them and say, I don't have my own show and I'm a contributor to other programs, but, you know, I have this incredible opportunity and, and my heart's to serve this nation. And they understood and they were, they were cool about it, but, uh, you know, it was a massive pay cut for my family, but it was definitely worth it, man, to go and uh, and to work at the Pentagon and and to do what was necessary to, to make sure that our troops had what they needed to get their job done, and so they come home uh, safe and be with their families again. That was, uh, especially during these moments, these defining moments, right? Uh, was was pretty special. So you mentioned before about your confirmation hearing, because for those who aren't familiar with government, how it works in these appointed positions that. The Senate has to confirm the individual, as we've seen before with Supreme Court justices and whatnot. What was more nerve-wracking, election night or waiting for the confirmation? Well, election night, because I was always going to be an up and tuck one. I mean, I, as I told you, I won my first race by 0.6% of the quarter million votes cast. I won by 1,518 votes. Wow. Um, and then everyone was like, oh, man, this guy's accidental congressman, et cetera. And, and then the Republicans, they, 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 they got a... You know, the guy was pretty wealthy and he was a Marine Colonel and he had a really good bio. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, listen, man, I'm sending a message, man. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to get beat by a Marine. <laughs> so <laughs> I, um, I wound up winning that race by like 55,000 votes by 15 points. Um, uh, that was in 08. But, uh, you know, to me, uh, I felt good about the Senate confirmation because I stood there. Uh, and, and look people in the eye, uh, Senator McCain and, and his colleagues and, and told them what I stood for and where I saw, I thought the army should go. Uh, yes, I was nominated by the president of the United States, but as you mentioned, Mark, you have to be confirmed by the Senate, the whole checks and balances of our nation. And so, um, to have, uh, folks like Jack, Senator Jack Reed is a former 82nd Airborne paratrooper. Uh, some of my, Former colleagues like Senator Joe Donnelly, he's a good buddy of mine, a guy from South Bend, Indiana, Notre Dame graduate. You know, he was a big champion of mine, uh, and others. Uh, Jim Imhoff, who voted my way, uh, who's now the chairman of the Armed Services Committee, Senate Armed Services Committee. You like, you know, and he's a Republican from Oklahoma. I mean, those are the folks that were, uh, that, that voted to confirm me, uh, and it was unanimous. And that was something that, uh, I'm very proud of. And I think I hopefully made them proud of my efforts when I had a chance to serve. So you are now the Undersecretary of the Army. What do you do on your first day as Undersecretary of the Army? Um, you know, it's interesting. I'm there, and uh, at the end of the first day, I, I, they tell me, hey, listen, that there's the guy who's the acting secretary right now, your boss, he has to step down to get confirmed. So by the end of the week, you're actually going to be the number one and not the number two. So you're going to, by the end of the week, you're going to be the acting secretary of the army. And I was like, uh, okay. Uh, all right. So, you know, I got a chance to meet my battle buddy who was 
uh, General Mark Milley. Uh, he's a four-star general. I, I served, I deployed with him after 9-11 when he was Colonel Mark Milley and I was Captain Murphy. Uh, he's a hockey player from Princeton University, ROTC guy, and I was a hockey player from King's College, a small Catholic college in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania. It's affiliated with Notre Dame. And, uh, and I was like, hey, it's like anything else, man. When I was a lieutenant, they used to say, you got to be ready to stand in front of those 40 men and women in that platoon. And, and you better stand in front of them and tell them what you stand for. And you better be able to, you know, call cannons and, and lead them in, in PT and stuff like that. And so I remember thinking to myself, well, how am I going to stand in front of 1.3 million soldiers and civilians of the army that work for the army right now? Cause you can't get around every post and you can't do it. So I said, well, I'm going to get out there and I am going to call cadence. I'm going to get out there and do PT with troops. But I said, I'm also going to send an email out to, to all 1.3 million people in the army. And I remember the team at the Pentagon's like, you want to do what? I said, yeah, I want to send an email out. Nothing formal, not a letter, but I'm going to quick email and introduce myself and say, it's great to be back on your army team and who I am and, and what we're going to do real quick. And they're like, well, we've never done that before. And I was like, well, it's, you have three, three days to figure this out. And I'll write the email. I'll send it to you so you could, you know, if you want to tweak it or if you want to have suggestions on it, but we're doing this. So please, yeah, figure it out. And so that, that was the first time they, they, you know, kind of figured that out. And, and then every seven to 10 days or so, I would send out an email blast. And, uh, unfortunately, um, when I was there, we had just had a soldier that was killed. So I was, uh, I, I went to the what's called the dignified transfer when they when they come back to mm-hmm. yeah. Dover Air Dover, Force yeah. Base in, in Delaware. So I you know I, I I drove up from Washington and was there with the family and met the family and and let them know that uh, you know I'm praying for them that I'm always going to be there and I gave them my cell phone which is still the same number today and said if I could ever do anything to be helpful to you or these kids uh, you let me know because uh, you're always going to be part of our family. And, uh, that's the reality of war. And that's the reality of what we ask of less than 1% of our nation. To your credit, uh, I do remember getting your emails. And at the time I had known you before we became the undersecretary, I'm like, Oh, Pat emailed me. And then I went, oops, I mean, sir, because at the time I was still serving, but it was always, I, I thought it was, you know, it, it was ingenuity. I mean, it was just, it was, it was great to see. It's one of those things where, uh, you often get email blasts and you ignore them, but when it comes from the undersecretary and I saw the signature block, I'm like, wait a minute, I know that guy. And so, uh, you know, I almost felt like it was personally addressed to me, even though I knew it was a, a, an email blast. I, I thought it was, you know, something different and something new. And uh, I think it was well received. I also thought it was great that you took time to go out there and do PT with units. I mean, that's, you know, uh, like you said, it's it's a basic premise of leadership. You know, don't ask your soldiers to do anything you won't do. And if you're out there with them, they're always going to look at you in a different manner. Right. And and they always appreciate the fact that, you know, when you go and you PT with them, you do the same exercise they're doing. I mean, I remember two weeks in, I was like, well, hey, let's go take a quick trip and see the troops in Iraq and Afghanistan, man. Because if I'm going to testify in Congress, I better know what the heck's going on and, and get, you know, from the commanders in the ground and from the troops in the ground. And so I remember being over there and I show up for PT the next morning in Afghanistan and, you know, they were doing fireman carries and, you know, I got a guy and, and I said, Hey, I got in line the guy next to me. Like I put him on my shoulders and I, you know, I ran up 50 meters with them on my shoulders. And, you know, I know the Washington posted this big expose on like what they call the soldier secretary about how Patrick Murphy's leading from the front. Uh, and two years earlier, I've been on the, well, I'm sorry, a year earlier, I had been on this, uh, unfortunately, I was on, involved in a, the Amtrak cat crash that killed eight people back in, uh, 2015. And, uh, and so they did a thing about, man, this guy's doing PT with troops and he's doing this and he's doing that. And he's sending these email blasts out. He's writing personal notes to the, the, those who are fallen. Uh, but that's just basic tenets of leadership, man. You know, Mark, you led men and women. Like you, you just got to get in front of them and let them know who you are as a person where your heart is and, and you try and do the best job you can uh, to let them know that we're all in this together. You already had passed on asked on tell at this point um, while you were acting as secretary of the army, uh, you issued the formal directive opening all com- combat arms positions to females. Um, something that was in the works for years, something that was always talked about for a while. Uh, kind of just give me the background of, you know, the impetus for actually doing this thing and uh, where your head was with the whole thing. Listen, I got to know like great warriors like Lisa Jaster. Lisa Jaster was a, was a major 
in the Army Reserve. She's a fellow crossfitter with me. Uh, she she is she is you know what I call beast man. She I mean I don't mean that I mean that respectfully, but you know she she was tougher than a lot of dudes I knew, and and she went to go to Ranger School and. You know, we believe the fundamental principle of our constitution is about equality. Can you get the job done? No matter what sex you are, religion you are, race you are, all that stuff. And so, yeah, we opened up Ranger School and all the MOSs to women. We were not going to lower standards. We we're going to keep them the same, same level. And, you know, then General Mark Milley, and as you know, General Milley is now the chief staff of the army, but he's going to be the, hopefully, God willing, uh, and just was confirmed as the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, of armed services and we testified to, together in congress saying hey let's open it up to everybody like you know that's 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 if people want to go to ranger school throughout it is most women won't be able to get to ranger school and guess what most men can't get to ranger school neither yeah but if they want to try out and they want to compete for it and they can get through pre-qualification they can get through then then good for them and give them that opportunity and, and that's what we did uh and it passed the senate and and, uh, you know, we moved on from there. You know, you talked about your passion and why you wanted to serve and why you wanted to run for office and all those things. And, you know, in this short time since you last had your first election, and we're now going on 13 years, a lot has changed in the political landscape and the political realm. But now as a spectator, when you watch the debates that go on, and we don't often go, you know, talk politics on the podcast, but given your background, this is certainly a worthwhile discussion. But when you watch this stuff go on now and you see the discourse back and forth, what's your reaction? What do you think? Well, a couple of things, Mark. Listen, I love my country. I feel like I'm a patriot. I, I, you know, I vote for the best person for the job, whether Democrat or Republican or independent. Uh, but I am a firm believer that we need more veterans in Congress, in the Senate, and in the White House. Uh, and, and I've been over backwards. I have a, I have two political action committees. One's taking the hill, which supports veterans. The other one's called Kennedy Democrats, uh, that, that are Democrats that believe in national security and, 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 you know, uh, pro jobs, pro business and, and pro, you know, fiscal discipline. And so for me, listen, we're in the throes of, of a presidential season, 2020s next year. Uh, and, you know, I'm a big fan of, of, of Mayor Pete. Uh, edge and, uh, Mayor Pete is a mayor of South Indiana. He's an Afghan war veteran, uh, naval intelligence officer, served in Kabul, uh, is a good guy. And, uh, I've known him for years. And, and, uh, you know, if he would win, he'd be, uh, the most experienced combat veteran we've had in 25 years since the first president Bush, who was a World War II veteran. And I think, you know, of the 911 generation, to have someone who served in Iraq or Afghanistan to, to serve in the White House, they'll make sure that if we're going to send men and women to harm's way, they will have everything they need to get the job done, and we won't send them anywhere in vain, and we won't send them anywhere unless it's for the right reasons. And we will also hold the Congress accountable to make sure that they vote on things like the new uh, AUMF, it's called Authorization for Use for Military Force, that they know, the Congress knows where our men and women are and why they're serving in certain areas and to make sure they have what it needs to get the job done and to come home. If you were to run again today, would you have to take a different tactic uh, than you did the first time around to be effective? Um, listen, most folks who run are millionaires and billionaires sometimes. Right. So I, I'm not. So uh, I keep playing a lottery and I work my tail off, but uh, I, I get it. But I also get the fact that and the reality of it is, is like, uh, you know, uh, like I would run it the same way and, uh, I would put the country first. I want kowtow to special interest. Uh, I would do what's right for the people. Uh, and that's why I think Pennsylvania is such an awesome state. Uh, you know, we, we, we have great areas like great cities like Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and Harrisburg. Uh, but we have great rural areas like Bucks County and Dolphin County and elsewhere. And I'll tell you, uh, you know, we're the Keystone State for a reason. We're a swing state for a reason. Uh, and we vote for people and, and not a party. And I think, you know, if I was going to run again, whether it's in Pennsylvania or nationally, uh, I would, I think people recognize that, 
you know, I, I have a, I have a, a, you know, my life has been in public service and in the private sector, but it's always been uh, what's best for the nation, not what's not the best for Patch Murphy. When you see division like we have now, um, is it something that you think is solvable? And it's, I'm just asking, not in a grant, asking Pat Murphy his opinion. I, I do. Listen, I think people are tired with, with the politicians and a political uh, spectacle that, that happens in Washington. And I think people are hungry for change and authentic leaders, gr- gritty leaders that will get in front of the American people and stand on their own two feet and let them know where they stand and let them know what they're going to do and then go and do it and get the job done and work uh, with Democrats and Republicans, bring them together, building coalitions to move the ball forward on behalf of all of us. And I think that's, that's why um, for people like Mayor Pete uh, and others who I think have, have proven uh, time and time again that they're standing out for the right, the right thing. You look back on your military service all the years ago and where you are now, uh, how much of it dictated you know, the rest of your life to where it is now. Well, I, I joke, Mark, man, if it wasn't for the army, if it wasn't for frankly, like, uh, the army joining 19, uh, I would have never been a U S congressman. I've never been a West Point professor. Uh, I probably wouldn't have been a lawyer. I mean, the army instilled in me a discipline and stamped the love of country on my heart. Uh, that was probably always in there for my parents and, and others, but really setting a tone, uh, to move the ball forward and really set a tone, uh, really to have that grit, you know, and, you know, you and I used to talk about that, man. I, when I was a senior in high school, I had four jobs. One of my jobs, besides delivering newspapers and waiting tables in the graveyard shift, I was a security guard for the Philadelphia Eagles at the old veteran stadium, you know, and I was a, you know, 120, 125 pound security guard in the old 700 level veteran stadium. And I used to joke that that was tougher duty than Baghdad, you know, <laughs> but, you know, it was one of those jobs that, you know, made me stand on my own two feet and, uh, and understood that, you know, it's, it can be hard, but, you know, I knew, you know, I knew the value of education and, and, you know, when I went to community college, you know, to make the Dean's list and then earn a scholarship and go play hockey and then, you know, get an ROTC scholarship that that was, you know, and I was competing for those types of scholarships against young guys from Harvard and Notre Dame, et cetera. And, and do well, like that was, that was a, that gave me confidence in myself that I knew I could do well in life and that I could show people what I stood for and, and how I could lead men and women and do it in the right way. And, you know, I call cadence a lot better now than I did when I was uh, 18, 19, 20 years old. When I was first in the army, but I still got it, buddy. And I still get after DPT with troops whenever I can. You know, you mentioned uh, your time working as a security guard uh, at the vet on February 13th, 2008. Uh, you were the only member of the House to vote against the resolution congratulating the New York Giants for their Super Bowl victory. And that is the only thing I emphatically disagree with on your political record. <laughs> well, Mark, again, I read all these books about campaigns and and I, you know what they say, all politics is local, man. I represent 700,000 people in the Philadelphia area. You know, I was I was their guy in Congress. And so I couldn't go back <laughs> home and vote for the New York Giants, but that's an NFC East rival. So <laughs> I voted against it. As you know, it passed 412 to 1. I was the one. But I will tell you, man, there's people that, you know, I had a lot of folks in Bucks County said, hey, Patrick, I didn't vote for you. But, man, you have some guts. You, you only got to vote against the Giants in the whole Congress. <laughs> you know, they, they, they knew I stood for something. Uh, and it, it wasn't just going to you know, go along and get along. And I think that's what the American people want in their elected representatives. And, uh, and frankly, people that can relate to that, that understand the struggles and the challenges they face and how they want a, a, a brighter future for their sons and daughters. And kind of that's all of our responsibility to make our country better moving forward. Well, on that note, I will always commend you for your courage and your guts and the moral courage that you have, even though you're against the giants, I'll, I'll, I'll let it slide. But, I, I call you – it's fortunate enough that I get to call your friend. I know – and I can tell the audience this. Uh, I have your cell phone number. I text you. You text me back regardless of how busy you are. That's the kind of man you are. That's the kind of leader that you are, that you you, you pour your heart and soul into everything that you're around. And, uh, again, all of your accomplishments as a congressman, as the undersecretary of the Army and everything. And, you know, I respect the hell out of everything you've done, but I'm also – 
lucky and fortunate enough to be able to call you a friend. You've always been there, and you've always been uh, generous with your time. And certainly, I, I thank you not only for your service to the Army, your service to the country, but certainly for spending some time with me here this evening. So I appreciate it, brother. Well, right back to you, Mark, and thanks for your service as a colonel in our Army and, and doing all that you and your family have done. And, and, and I love you like a brother. You know that, and I'm always here for you. And uh, you let me know when you want to come back to Philly. I'll take you out for a cheesesteak, brother. I would, good? I would love it, absolutely. Patrick Murphy, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. All right, God bless. Airborne. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Angie's List is now Angie, your home for everything home. Angie still has the same top pros and reviews you've counted on for more than 20 years. Only now, you'll also get access to all the tools you need to make your home a happy place. Inside, outside, big or small, Angie helps you find the right solution for whatever you need done, all from your phone. It's simple to find upfront pricing and instantly book hundreds of projects. You can even search pricing guides to see what others paid for similar jobs and easily compare quotes from top local pros to make sure you're getting a fair price. From lawn care to repairing the AC to the project of your dreams, Angie has your home projects handled from start to finish. Plus, when you book and pay through Angie, they'll cover your project up to the full purchase price plus limited damage protection with their happiness guarantee. Make your home an Angie home. Check out Angie.com today. And for more on the happiness guarantee, go to Angie.com forward slash happiness hyphen guarantee dot htm. With MailChimp, you get more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales with things like data-driven recommendations and powerful automation tools. Get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses.